Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. 2023 has been a huge year on the crime couch. We've featured some of the most intriguing and fascinating current and former police members and interesting individuals. This is part one of a two-parter, featuring the best of the crime couch this year. Christine Chris McIntyre was a trailblazer in the job and one of the first females to join the very blokey squad, the Breakers. Chris, how tough were the crooks in those days? They were all tough, um, but back in those days, if you caught a cook fair and square, they wouldn't put a knife to your throat or um, uh, shoot you down dead. Uh, you know, you... you Caught them fair and square, and most of the time they confessed. So there's a difference, I think. Any in particular that sort of stood out? I think uh, there was one time when there was a, a lot of burglaries, daylight burglaries over in the Piersdale area. The crooks were breaking into sheds and stealing outboard motors and all sorts of things. So through Rex and I found out who the crooks were. We put the observation squad on them. And in those days, you'd follow the observation squad just in case the crooks caught them red hot doing a berg. And this is exactly what happened. I was with a, a sergeant, Alan Dale, and I were following the observation squad. And they gave us an address at Piersdale, which was semi-rural farm. And we didn't know the crooks were there. And we walked down, drove the car, police car down, um, parked, got out went into the shed and they were there. And the shed was like Aladdin's cave. It was just absolutely chock-a-bot full of stolen gear. So we separated the two. I had the young one, Alan had the older bloke. And then I hear Alan call out, he's got my gun, he's got my gun. So I did what any female would do with my young bloke. I kneed him straight in the balls and he went down like a bag of sack. Anyway, I went out and it was a quite a serious situation. Alan was fighting the crook for the gun. I jumped on the crook's back and tried to put him in a sleeper hold and he yelled out, get her off or I'll shoot you. And Alan said he's got his finger on the trigger, get off. So got off and we were held up by this bloke and his partner. And bearing in mind the surveillance unit were in the area, so Alan and I put our arms up really high, hoping that they would see that something was going on. And in my head, I was thinking, we're the good guys. The good guys always win, but this is not the scenario that's happening. So anyway, he marched us into the shed and got the young bloke to tie us up, uh, lay us down, and we were facing one another. And I recall looking at Alan thinking, I think it's lights out. You know, we really thought that this bloke was going to shoot us because he had um, Alan's revolver. So anyway, he tied us up and they took the rotor button out of the police car and took off. And uh, we escaped 
And I'll never forget Alan getting on the radio and saying to D24, we've just been held up and D24 saying something like, what, what, what are you late for something? You're late going somewhere. And Alan said, no, we've just been held up. And then, of course, all hell broke loose. And uh, it was a situation where the next day it was headlines in the Herald Sun, you know, female and male held up. But looking back on it now, it was was sort of embarrassing for me because I felt, and I guess you put pressure on yourself, you felt as a female, I should have done more. Why, why couldn't I have knocked the bloke out or whatever? You know, you really do beat yourself up. But you did leap on his back. I did. I did leap on his back and I... I learned how to put him in a sleeper hold to put him down, but uh, he'd already, you know, had his finger on the gun. And it was a split-second decision, what do you do, or is he actually going to shoot my partner? And I think he would have because he was desperate. And uh, he was um, actually two weeks later because they were on the run and they did things like uh, dress up as women and try and escape and, uh, you know, we, we were after them for a couple of weeks and... Um, unfortunately, he got shot dead by one of the blokes in the breaking squad. Well, that does happen. That does happen. Janet Lowe is a legend inside and outside Victoria Police. She was the 79th policewoman to join during the 1960s. A very big welcome. Hi, Janet, and and welcome to the Crime Couch. Thanks for having me at the Crime Couch. This is very comfortable. What was it like being the only policewoman in your squad and the only one at the academy? Oh, it was wonderful. I get my own way all the time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you would have. Tell me, what jobs were policewomen given in those days, Janet, And, and why? Why were they given certain jobs? Well, we went up to the uh, up to Russell Street as graduated police persons. We weren't. I mean, it was just the usual uh, teaching of young people. We weren't given jobs as as so many of them sort of infer that we were given inferior jobs. That didn't happen. We were fully paid members of the police force, and we worked as such. So you investigated other things, not just welfare and children? Good heavens, yes. Yes, we did all sorts of things. Yes. You see, there's a saying, the role of a police officer is one of the most difficult in our society. He or she must deal with a range of problems and people that test your ingenuity, character and courage in ways that few of us are ever tested. Do you agree? Absolutely. Wendy Cowling is a former Victoria Police Sergeant with 34 years under her belt. She had mentors like Joan Paffett, Sandy Langlands, Maureen Purcell and Jill Wood. 
You began, Wendy, at the Russell Street Police Women's Division. How would you describe those times? Because there was quite a number of females in the two squads when we went in. There was 14 in each of the squads. So a lot of the girls did go out to general duties stations as training stations at that time. But uh, one of the, as I said before I went to, well, you said we went to the Police Women's Division. I found it great grounding uh, there was time for you to actually learn what you were doing. You had we had really good mentors, in, as you said, in the sergeants before, Myron Purcell and Jill Ward, who was an acting sergeant at that stage, Sandy Langlands and Christine McIntyre, who were all great mentors to us. And I just found it was a good way to start your career, and I was there for. For two years, and in that time, we also had the transition to community policing squads, where I then had sergeants, male sergeants, come in, and they were they were good mentors at at that time as well. You mentioned a number of the police women that I've already interviewed, like Myreen, and a number of the people, Joan, hopefully, who'll be on the on the crime catch shortly. You mentioned those people. Why were they outstanding? Like, why why did they motivate and inspire you? I suppose they had come through a time where it had been a bit tougher for the girls and I always felt that they were there to not to make it easier because it sometimes it wasn't easy at all because you were the new kid on the block but they were there to show you how to to police in a, a different way and women I might be putting my neck out here, but women do police in a different way to men. And I think that two years was just the best grounding for me for then when I was able to go out and work operationally and general duties at Cheltenham. Now, Wendy, you brought up an interesting subject there. Why and how were police women perceived in the job in those days? Well, in those days, we were still wearing skirts and stockings. It was just early 80s that the trousers were coming into vogue. So I always felt that we had a little bit of an edge back in those days because when you came across a criminal, they would always balk just slightly and it was never... They were always polite, even of um, because you you were a female. Yeah, they were, and we did. We haven't got the brawn, but we would use the brain, is what I'd like to say. And we were able just to talk to people normally. I've spoken to bikies and all types of criminals, and I've always felt not never really been disrespected as a policewoman. Maybe it's because when we were getting out of the car, they would see the stockings before they saw the trousers. One of my most favourite interviews this year, and what an honour, was sitting on the crime couch with the world's longest-serving female police officer, Detective Senior Sergeant Joy Murphy. You worked with an infamous and well-known police member, Brian the Skull Murphy, unfortunately, of course, has now passed. Look, I wasn't in the dealer squad at the time. I was actually attached to Heidelberg CIB and the request came in to provide somebody from Heidelberg CIB to work at the Metropolitan Regional Crime Squad where Brian Murphy was in charge. 
being the only female in the office, I got the short straw and I was sent to work with him. And I, I'm sure there's a lot of chuckles in the office when I was sent because they thought, well, he'll, he'll break her or uh, maybe she'll break him, I don't know. But uh, I, I ended up uh, working, I think, nearly 12 months and did some really good work and got commendation for a, an arrest uh, of a serial rapist whilst I was there. So uh, it all worked out very well and, you know, I, I'm happy that I got shafted, if you like. What a way to explain it. So you've got fond memories of Brian? Yes, look, I have. Look, he, he was a tough guy and he swore a bit, but he was also a very funny guy. Look, I, I really enjoyed the time I worked with him and I learned a lot from him. I learned how to speak to criminals and that is really an important thing to, to be able to do when you're a police officer, particularly as an investigator. And he often spoke a lot about that. When I interviewed him for the Billy Longley book, he spoke about how invaluable it was to build that rapport with crims. Yes, absolutely. Uh, There wasn't much that he didn't know around, you know, the criminal uh, world in in Victoria at that stage. He, he, He knew a lot of criminals, some very shady characters. You know, you'd be driving down the street and he would point somebody out and he'd say, oh, that person's so-and-so and and they've done this and, uh, you know, they've been in jail for that long, etc. It was just absolutely amazed me, his knowledge. Did you see much discrimination as a young police female detective in the job, Joy? I think I was a bit blind to it in a way. When I joined, there was only about 200 women in the organisation. I think women are a little bit of a novelty. You know, the blokes liked having the women around. But I found the minute I started to move into doing work that they would normally do, that some people didn't really like having a woman there. And I found that when I was a detective and I went to uh, Heidelberg CIB, that certain blokes would not work with me because I was a female. Uh, they'd just go missing during the shift and I'd have to work on my own. And didn't you have at one stage someone comment about your new hairstyle? Yes, I, I did have uh, a, a perm and my hair was quite curly. It wasn't really an afro, but it, it was close, I suppose. And uh, this chief inspector said to me uh, he didn't, didn't like my hair and he wouldn't go to my uh, hairdresser. And because he was as bald as a badger and I just said, well, I wouldn't go to yours. Do you find that that worked basically giving as good as you got? Yes, look, I, it gets me into trouble sometimes because I do. I, I tend to speak the truth. You know, I say what I think. Uh, I don't intend to offend people, but you know, in that situation, he, look, he took it well. He, you know, I thought I'd be in a lot of trouble for saving for saying it, but he just walked away with embarrassed, and that was that. This year, we've also lost some of our dearest and most senior Victoria Police veterans, like Lillian Lil Irwin, registered number 13868. Lil led the way for women in the job and was the first female inspector promoted in 1977. Vale Lillian Lil Irwin. You've 
had quite an, an experience working in the job. You were posted to Morwell Police Station. Now, do you remember what happened when the new Chief Commissioner paid a visit? Remember what happened? Oh, yes. I, he was... I had my new, uni- a new uniform and I thought I'd better wear this so I wore a good uniform and threw a beautiful salute to the Chief and the button popped up the top of my uniform and rattled <laughs> down the concrete and the Mayor of Maul, of Maul chased it and brought it back and put it in my hands in front of the fellow who'd just been promoted. How did that go down? He went home and had nervous breakdown. <laughs> and I believe you were—you got stirred about that and they said it was because of you that he had the breakdown. Yes, it was all my fault. <laughs> Unbelievable. Look, Lil, you were at Geelong when you encountered that colourful identity uh, who was, uh, I think you were dealing with some underage young girls that oh. were causing trouble. So yeah, tell me yeah, what happened. Who, who did you uh, deal with? Mick Gatto was the main one, and he was on his own, but he was trying to win the girls, and he was showing off and kept answering my questions instead of letting the girls do it. And I said, for heaven, say, come over here. And I took him over to his table. I sat him down. I said, you sit there and you keep your mouth shut. I don't want to be interrupted by you or anyone else. And uh, he just looked at me. I said, if I hear one more question from you, I'm going to hang you on the, that um, hat rack by the door. <laughs> by and the, this was Mick Gatto. Earring. By your what earring? By your puffy earring. So, Lil, how did Mick Gatto, how did Mick Gatto deal with that? He's a policewoman. Well, he was still looking at me. I had his mouth hanging open and just looking. He was still sitting there when I left the hotel. And I walked out the hotel and <laughs> said, I'm going now. It's all right. That took a lot of courage, though, dealing with Mick Gatto. Oh, I didn't, it didn't worry me. I didn't know him. <laughs> it didn't worry me at all. I was quite happy to tell him off and, you know, tell him to mind his own business. And I had dealt with him. I didn't realise as a child and stuck the fingernails into the ear and said, go on, do, do what your mother told you. Esther Mackay and I met at a writers' festival during 2005. She's a good friend, and after 17 years in New South Wales Police, specialising in forensics, the former Detective Senior Constable is now making a big difference in the veteran and police welfare space with Police Care Australia. Just take yourself back to the first memories that you had when you joined the police service in New South Wales. When was the first time that you actually saw a dead body? It was actually the first week because we do what's known as induction. So a sergeant takes us around to all the different stations and introduces us to all the different um, areas in policing, like detectives and highway patrol, that sort of thing. And one of the parts of that was to go to the morgue. So 
we went to the morgue at Camden, which is um, in those days was just a small morgue. And when we when we got into the morgue, the morgue attendant said that, oh, oh, a couple of young'uns here, Sarge. Oh, well, that's great because I've got a baby in fridge too. I'll I'll bring that one out. And at that minute, I remembered that I had a friend actually giving birth in the hospital, and I thought to myself, oh my god. I hope it's not her baby. I hope something hasn't gone wrong. So I think that was probably the first time I realised that your life actually is impacted by what you're seeing. And then he brought this little tiny bundle in white sheets out and opened it up. And I think he thought it was a bit, a bit of shock value for us, which in fact it probably it was. But it just looked like a doll, you know. It was it, it, it was quite confronting, but we all took it in our stride and, you know, that was the first time I, I actually had seen a dead person. Well, you don't really have the avenue to be anything other than be not vulnerable. Exactly. I think because you're so young, you don't really know what's going on. And even in those days, people weren't really that in touch with their emotions. So I learned very, very early on just to cut your emotions off and just get on with the job and not think too deeply into it. But I I think one of the things that sort of struck me was that my mum was a social worker at the time. And she'd always sort of talked about the difficulties of adolescence and growing up. And so she would often ask me questions after I'd come home from a difficult job. And having her to assist me was a real help and a a real blessing, actually, without me really knowing it at the time. It was like a debriefing. Yeah, exactly. When did you start to feel that you were starting to unravel? It it sort of started to happen. I mean, my boss at the time, who was amazing, he was so supportive. He said to me, around about the three-year mark, you'll start to have some issues. And I thought, that's not going to happen to me because I don't have any mental health in my family. That was how naive I was. I didn't realise that it was actually going to be caused by what I was seeing. I thought, oh, it must be something to do with the flaw in your in your makeup. But he said to me, you know, you'll start avoiding the workplace. You know, you might be a bit teary. You might be having problems with facing some of your photographs, that sort of thing. And sure enough, around about the three-year mark, that's exactly what happened. I started to... I remember I did a really terrible, shocking incident where two boys were killed and found inside the Pheasant's Nest Bridge, and it was a protracted, long investigation. It was a lot of media around it, a lot of pressure to get some answers. And the photographs came back from the day that I'd done the scene... And I said to my colleague, he was sort of waving them around, here's the photos. And I said, get them away from me. I don't want to see them. And he said, what? What do you mean? And I said, just get them away. I don't want to look at them. And he said, oh, okay, I'll put them in a a brown sort of envelope that's not clear because all our photos were in like a clear plastic envelope. And and I said, I don't, and get them them out of here. I don't care where you put them. He said, well, I'll put them in the file. We've got to keep them. And I said, I don't really care what you do with them. And that afterwards I thought, oh, gee, that was... That was a bit strange. And he said to me, you know, why were you saying that? And I said, I just didn't want to see them at that point. And then after that actual scene, a few weeks later, I was having dinner and there was a candle on the table. It was quite dark. And I was eating a rack of lamb and the bones in the rack of lamb looked like the bones of one of these deceased persons at the morgue. And I just went to pieces. I just, it it just flew out of my body. I was just shaking. I was crying. I pushed the plate away. I didn't want to see it. That was, yeah, I wasn't sleeping well. I was waking up during the night, couldn't get back to sleep. Very teary. I didn't want to go to work. I was avoiding work, but yet I would push myself to go. Um, I was puffing on a cigarette in the car on the way home and I wasn't a smoker. Uh, I felt like drinking. Uh, Alcohol was, even though I wasn't really a big drinker at the time, alcohol was what was de-stressing me um, when I wasn't on call. 
Yeah, all sorts of behaviours were starting to come out, nightmares. But I, of course, at the time, I pushed it aside. And I did speak to my boss at that time and uh, said to him, look, I'm, I'm just not really coping. And he said, look, either I let the welfare unit know and they'll probably want to transfer you out or you can take a week off annual leave and get yourself sorted out. So I decided to take the week off annual leave because I didn't want to lose my job in forensics. I loved it. And I got through another 10 years or so of policing like that because I just, I don't know, I just shut down. And that was how I coped. And Maureen Blue has spent more than five decades in Victoria Police in both sworn and unsworn roles. She's an expert in management, behavioural issues, education and training. Maureen's also just retired and very much looking forward to the next chapter of her life. You've seen, Maureen, an enormous amount of change and reform in Victoria Police, being there over 50 years. How would you say the organisation is placed today? Can I say that's a tricky question, Rochelle? We've come a long way with our mental health. We've come a long way with how we look after our people, but we're still not getting it right. We're not doing it well enough. There's way too many people still suffering from mental health issues because of the way they're being treated in the workplace. I've heard that currently operational police are facing pressure like never before and that often a lot of the time it's managers that are also not picking up the ball and taking on board responsibility. Do you think that's an accurate assessment? I think so because, as we discussed earlier, middle managers are so bogged down with paperwork and processes and policies and they don't always have the time to be in the moment and realise that their people are suffering. And it takes a very brave junior member to come forward and say, I'm not coping. So clearly, you know, this responsibility lays with our middle managers, but how do we find that balance? It still seems to me too, there's still such a stigma of admitting that you're not coping or that you are suffering and have got some mental health issue. Is that accurate? I think we're breaking down the barriers and I've noticed it over the last maybe five to eight years when I was training at Subbies that a lot more of our middle managers are saying, yes, it's okay, and putting their hands up in the class and saying, I've struggled. I struggled, but I got help and I'm here now. Look, I got promoted, you know, but I might have been off work for 12 months with mental health issues, but I clawed my way back. takes a lot of courage to do that. But we always used to get a lot of disclosures in the classroom from, because we call it Chatham House Rules, so we want it to be a safe environment because like any learning, you learn from your mistakes. And and that's one of the big things that we teach with our middle managers that, you know, it's okay to reach out if you're not coping. Do you think that goes back to the way that members used to be, which is that you had to be 10 foot tall and bulletproof and how you dealt with pressure and stress on the job was to get on the drink? Coming through, the, I didn't drink before I joined Victoria Police, so coming through the organisation in the 70s, 80s and 90s, being, you know, one of the first to work the van, you know, getting into the CI, working with some fairly hefty long-term detectives, I 
was introduced to alcohol at one stage there because I was one of the few female detectives around at the time. We used to get a lot of, they'd always call the female detectives in to do the rape statements, sex offenders, child abuse, all of that. And I realised one day that I wasn't coping. I had a young family, a young daughter at that stage, and I'd just had enough. And I'd realised that I was probably self-medicating a little bit too much. And if you want to hear a really funny story, I tucked my tail between my legs and we didn't have well-being services back then, but we did have chaplaincy. So I put my tail between my legs and I made an appointment to go out to the academy to speak to the chaplain. And I told him how I was feeling and that I thought I was drinking too much to try and ease the pain. And his words to me were, well, clearly you're not drinking enough. Very different now, Maureen. Imagine saying that now as a chaplain. Exactly. You wouldn't hear that from a chaplain in this day and age. Things were very different back then and we were a paramilitary organisation and you just didn't admit to those kind of things. You had to be strong. It must be a huge transition for you to leave the job and something that you know so well. Are you already enjoying the fact you don't have to get up for the 7am's? Oh my God, you know, when I first started long service leave, I reckon I was sleeping 12 hour days because I was so used to getting up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, heading out to the city or the academy or wherever we were going. And it was just like my body just relaxed, you know. I've noticed now as the time's gone by, I'm getting back into more of a routine and transitioning more into my veggie garden and my chooks and and yeah it's just a lovely it's a lovely time in your life that I never thought I'd get to just if that makes sense you know you just don't ever think you're gonna be able to retire so yeah it's wonderful. What's next for you Maureen? You've told us about your veggie patch and the chickens but what's next? Okay so my husband who works from home occasionally is uh, younger than me So I've put him on a three-year limit to keep working before he can retire. (laughs) But in the meantime, we're just going to be doing a few little trips. Once he retires, we'll hopefully downsize and be able to get more trips in. Yeah, that's about... That's the small version. Sounds fabulous. Well, thank you very much for sitting with me today on the Crime Couch. Enjoy the next part of your life and journey. I shall do. And, of course, I've got my lovely granddaughters as well, which is a joy. Thanks, Maureen. Thanks, Rochelle. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Couch.